everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another exciting episode of the Midnight Mass Podcast. Uh, And I would like, if I may, to take you on a journey, a strange journey, but I can't do it alone. Uh, As you know, I must be joined by my trusty co-host, uh, who I, I can see, you cannot, but I can see, and oh my god, he looks fabulous in his little black dress. Uh, so without further ado, let me introduce the one, the only, it's Michael Verratti. Hi, Michael. Hi, Peaches. Well, you know, it's just a little zip, 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 up to the hip, hip, hip. <laughs> I am thrilled to be talking about this week's movie because I... I remember the first time I heard about it, I went on a mad quest across several different video stores. Yes, listeners, I am of the video store era to find a copy because there was a period of time where this was truly an obscure title. And now we're celebrating it in a big way. I think what's so great about it is there was a time when this would have almost in in the sort of the cultiverse of this movie and the in the world that it comes from it was not always celebrated in fact uh, it, it sort of enraged people you know and, and and over time i think it's really become its own project it got its own fan base and that's one of the reasons we actually celebrated it before we eventually someday get to its mother it's true which is the mother Let's not tease it any further. They fucking know what it is. They saw the title of the show, but they're all waiting for your fantastic intro. So why don't you give it to them? Well, we are going live on the air with a little extra juice this week because we are celebrating 1981's Shock Treatment, directed by Jim Sharman, and of course, co-created with the sensational Richard O'Brien, who is one of the true patron saints of cult. And as Peaches alluded to, Despite all of this pedigree, the reason this film may have had a little bit of a dubious start in the hearts of cult film fanatics is for the connection that it has to Rocky Horror. In fact, when I talked about my little journey to finding this movie on VHS at a rental store, I don't know, Peaches, if you recall that period where in the back of movie magazines like Monsters of Filmland or sometimes Fangoria, they would have the tape trader listings Mm -hmm. and they would give you like very brief descriptions of these tapes that like existed. And I remember seeing shock treatment the sequel to rocky horror and that's the only line that they had and i was like what they made a sequel to rocky horror how do i not know about this so then i went on a crazy journey and got my mom to drive me like 45 minutes to a local uh, well not so local video store to rent a copy of it and then watching it you get the sense like okay brad and janet are there sort of sort of (laughs) and there's this kind of similar you know aesthetic in a way but also not and there are themes that cross over but also not and so is it a sequel well the fan club said it was not a sequel it was not a prequel but an equal and we dig into this with both of our guests this week is that true who knows but if you're going to claim as a lot of these uh publicity pieces did that it was a, a sequel to Rocky Horror. And of course we know the grand swath that Rocky Horror cut into the cult fabric of the universe. That's a lot to take on. 
Yeah, and therein lies the problem, right? So its dubious start, as you say, was uh, the result of it sort of really being confusing, (laughs) you know, maybe more than anything. Uh, I think the confusion around it is perhaps what gave it a bit of a a challenge, actually quite a big challenge, um, because like you say, Brad and Janet are in it, but as we know, they're not played by Susan Sarandon and Barry Bostwick, and we know how that affects cult movie fanatics, we know. And so you've got these beloved characters who are played by these performers who, you know, came to become them in the minds of the the film fans. In addition, as if that's not confusing enough, you've also got Riff Raff, Magenta, and Columbia showing up, but they're not Magenta, Riff Raff, or Columbia. They're the actors who are so iconic. They all have unique extraordinary presences, right? Like their voices, even their looks, but they're not the characters that we love them playing, right? They're new characters, but sort of not because Richard and Patricia are brother and sister, which they were in the, you know, so it just was a mess for fans and that's okay. In fact, I think it's what makes the movie so fascinating now is that it kind of was introduced to me like this, supposedly this is the sequel to Rocky Horror, but it's fucking terrible and we all hate it. You know, that was, that was how it was introduced to me by an older Rocky fan. Um, and then, of course, my curiosity got the best of me and I watched it and I thought, what is this? I don't understand. And, and then I maybe didn't watch it for a while and then I watched it again a few years later. And, and then over time, it was like I could watch it as its own thing and sort of separate it from Rocky. And I think that's where a lot of us fans have been able to sort of embrace it and enjoy it. Because let's face it, Michael, you and I both agree, the music in this movie, the music is fucking fabulous. You know what's interesting as you were talking, and I don't know why I haven't fully had this revelation until this moment, but of course that's what our show's all about, is to consider these things. We both said in different ways, well, it's this, but it's not. Here are the characters that we know, yeah. but they're not. But they're not not those characters because of these connections. <laughs> yeah. And so then you get this thing that's complicated and messy to fans because they're expecting one thing, but it's not, but a little bit. And if you're not following all of that, that's because that's the intention here. And what I think is interesting about it is now that I'm really thinking about it, the whole of this movie, for those of you who don't know, and you probably, as we say every week, should pause right now and watch the film before you continue on, because we're gonna be talking a lot about the intricacy of this film. But this movie is all about a world that exists inside a television studio. Brad and Janet live inside this television studio and everybody's vying to be on TV. It's this world of artifice that is created for capitalist and consumer gains and everything's a brand everything's manufactured for television every expectation is manufactured and subverts what we actually are meant to expect and the movie is exactly that in a way the movie takes what we expected from a follow-up to the rocky horror fandom and was like you want us to make a brand out of this you want us to make a product out of this you expected that Well, we're here to tell you we don't believe in those things, and here's a movie about why. And that's kind of fascinating, and I don't know why I didn't, like, think about that until right now. The movie's sort of its own layered metaphor for our expectations. That's actually genius. I give you credit, Michael. I think you're completely right, and I think it's another example for the incredibly 
progressive and wild and imaginative and ahead of its time mind that is the mind of Richard O'Brien. And we we could get into, you know, Richard O'Brien's um, sort of more problematic, controversial, recent dialogue around trans issues and sort of the bizarre, fucked up things that they've said recently. But I think that that's going down the wrong road because, you know, let's look at these movies and especially Shock Treatment because that's what we're celebrating right now. Rocky Horror Picture Show connected with people because it was audacious enough to put these ideas out there that really hadn't been put forward before about sexuality, about trans folks, about being transgressive and sexual, sexual liberation and being um, shameless uh, about your gender presentation, whatever it may be, and whatever your sexual proclivities may be, and, and turning people on and, you know, all of these things, right? Shock treatment in many ways was just as prophetic about what the future would hold as far as, you know, the commodification of these things and the branding of them and the ownership around them and who was going to control people's minds and how they were going to control people's minds through corporations and the media. And look where we're at now. Right. <laughs> so regardless of, of, of Richard O'Brien being problematic today, and, and, and I would agree with people that, that Richard O'Brien has said some pretty fucked up problematic things I don't agree with, there is this other thing part that I want to acknowledge, which is, holy shit, he was like a, you know, a prophet or something, because this movie, when it came out, people just did not understand it. But watch it again, because it's, right. wow. It's wild. I mean, you know, from that, like, very layered dissection that we just did, just to the obvious things that we talk about with both of our guests, here's a movie that's all about existing full-time on TV and how people yearn for that a solid 20 years before reality TV had even made its debut. This movie is like the Big Brother house before we had a show or words for that. And at the time, it felt strange. Like, people don't live that much for TV. Oh, uh, yeah, they do. And we're living through it now. And we see it all the time. When you turn on any streaming device that has people who are like, welcome to my channel, and you should totally watch, but first a break as we brand with this content, which, you know, by the way, listen to our Patreon if, if you have not yet subscribed. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's exactly that. We live in that world. And this movie saw it coming. And I think Richard, uh, just from the, the, the bit of research that I did before we delved into our conversation, with our guests, uh, I did read an interview with Richard where he referred to this film as an abortion. I wonder if that's his response to the fan response, because in many ways, I think the film didn't get its due when it came out, and especially the music and the concepts. And, you know, because the fans rejected it, it wasn't received as well as I think it deserved to be, my, myself included. I include myself in, in the the uh, camp of people who were confused by it and didn't quite like it right away. But an abortion? I mean, I actually think it's a great movie. It's a fabulous movie. Um, it's so worth celebrating on the Midnight Mass podcast. It's it's really great, and it's influenced a lot of people. And I also think it's really interesting that when you go back and you look at the original one sheet and the way they marketed it, it's Richard. Like, Richard yeah. O'Brien is the face on the poster in this. But when you watch the movie, it doesn't make sense that Richard O'Brien's character would be the, the character used. So it, it's, it's another example of how confusing it all was, because in many ways, by putting Richard's face on the poster, it's almost hammering, and only Richard's face, it's almost hammering down again. Here it comes. It's a sequel to Rocky Horror, which, by the way, 
they they were doing. You know, that's right. the other thing that the research led me to understand was that Richard had pursued doing a traditional sequel to Rocky Horror, which one of our guests actually talks about, you know, and she says how how horrible <laughs> she hated the ideas of, you know, Frankenfurter having children and, you know, these things. I have a copy of the the one sheet of Shock Treatment. And what I love about that particular poster is, yes, it's Richard. But the one thing that we both failed to mention is it's hot pink like it is him <laughs> in hot pink not just like him against a hot pink background but he artistically envisioned in hot pink so i think that if you are coming off the queer spectacle parade that is rocky horror and you see the man who played riffraff presented in this bubblegum neon hot pink thing and with like these big kind of queer glasses you're just like oh yeah i know what i'm getting and you had no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And uh, we have the extreme honor and pleasure of, of talking to, in the universe of cult movie icons, one of the bona fide queens is joining us here. Of course, you know her best because she played Magenta in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And actually, she created the role of Magenta on stage in London before there was ever a movie. And then she's gone on to do a lot more movies, uh, a lot more projects, too many for us to discuss in this intro. But one of them, of course, was Shock Treatment. Without further ado, it's the lady herself, Lady Patricia Quinn. But if you open your heart to a smooth operator, he'll take you for all that you've got. He'll hand you a curse that'll be with you later. It'll shake you the way he takes off, like a shot. You need to be the shot treatment. Get you jumping like a real life wire. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Midnight Mass podcast in this extremely special and exciting interview. This was the guest of honor we hoped would join us, and she has agreed to be here. I met her years ago now, and we've done a lot of shows together since. I love her so much. She's the the icon, the legend. It's the one and only Patricia Quinn, everybody. Oh, good Lord. I'd have to live up to that, Peaches. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could go on and on. I mean, you know, I just minimized it. Honestly, it wasn't enough. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shark treatment. Get you jumping like a real live wire. Oh, it's so good. I think that people, of course, are going to be excited that we're doing shock treatment. They're going to wonder when we're going to do Rocky Horror. We don't know. Rocky Horror is the mother of all cult movies, midnight movies. So we'll, we'll save that for something special, hopefully an in-person event that we get to do with Patricia someday in the future. Future. So for now, we'd like to talk about shock treatment. And I guess I guess that's a, a good place to start, Patricia, because obviously this movie, this project was born out of Rocky Horror in some way or another. I, I think I've, I've read that it was originally supposed to be a more traditional sequel to Rocky Horror, but that it didn't work out for one reason or another and kind of evolved into what we know of now as shock treatment. But I'm wondering, how were you first 
approached with it? Was it Richard who brought the idea to you or how involved were you in the development of the project? And not at all. Yeah, Richard rang me about it and I had to go to see Richard Hartley, the MD, and Richard O'Brien at a flat in Fulham uh, to go over the songs of something called Shock Treatment. So I arrived, naive as usual, and um, stood there at the piano and they played some rather good tunes. When this movie was put together, it, it's my understanding that it went through a lot of changes uh, over the course yeah, of, of its yeah. production. And a lot of that was affected by a strike. I think, weren't you originally supposed to shoot in a town and then were relegated to a-, a- We were meant to be going to Texas. And I thought, oh good, because I hadn't been to Texas then. And I thought that'll do. And um, Sue Blaine, the costume designer, went to Texas and they were looking for locations. And uh, so she bought all the clothes from thrift shops which the audience wear they're all Texan thrift shop clothes and uh, the audience in the film were there anyway there was the writer's strike so nobody could work in America because of the unions so that blessedly um, well not blessedly bad for us because we I don't mean ended up but it was ended up in a tiny studio at Olympia so from the large ideas, which I don't know what they were, except it was locations in Texas, to a studio at Wembley. So, um, of course, there had to be a lot of changes because that was a small cinema studio. From what I've read and the research I've been able to do, that's what pushed them to re- imagine the script is something that took place in a television studio so they could get away with sort of shooting it this way, which also... Well, that's why it happened, is it? It doesn't matter, does it? It is what it is, so to speak. As far as I'm concerned, we were locked in a game show, in a reality show. I mean, what I'm saying, there weren't such things then. And if you kind of look at things like Big Brother now and whatever, now you know what they were talking about. You know, so we had a a captivated audience. They never went home. We all lived in the show. That is the part that to me is so, so fascinating is how, you know, um, almost psychic they were as far as creating this idea. It's very science fiction where they they create something that their imagination develops and then scientists and people later, you know, make it a reality. And it's similar in the entertainment industry with, with shock treatment. It's like they created this idea, which was reality television before reality TV existed. The Truman Show, you know, another feature film way before the Truman Show existed. So when they presented this idea to you, this sort of surreal idea, which I have to say is also very dark. I forgot how dark shock treatment was. What were your thoughts on the the idea behind it? I had no thoughts. I will tell you that Barry Humphreys and I were in makeup chairs when we were working on the set and we were on the working on the film. And Barry Humphreys said to me, uh, Pat, he said, do you know what this is about? And Pat said, no, went on and did the next scene. <laughs> is that the end of this interview? <laughs> no. Well, but but, but, yeah. but Peaches raised the, the point that this film was sort of uh, a predictor or a prognosticator of reality television, which of course didn't exist at that point. We culturally are so involved in TV and the idea of being on TV and, and what we'll do for entertainment. And then when reality TV was introduced, did you ever have that moment where, oh, that's what it was about? No. I don't think so. I didn't connect it. And I don't know that I watched much reality TV, but 
Uh, well, you're better for that. Yeah, so they say. No, no, I did watch Big Brothers when they first started, but I didn't connect it, oddly enough. That's strange, I didn't, no. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about was if this film, when it was released, had been made sometime later. And actually, we can look at sort of the cult build around it. When it was released, it was, I think, considered a bit of a failure because it was a box office failure. Critics and fans didn't understand it. And I think maybe part of the issue was that it was sort of set up to be something like Rocky Horror, maybe even... Well, that was a great mistake. And the other thing is, apart from there's a few of us in it, and um, there's still a Brad and Janet. They're the only ones who keep the names, actually, if I think about it, aren't they? And the the Hapshats. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they were there. That's right. I wonder why they did that. They couldn't be bothered to think of other names. I don't know why. But the thing is, that shock treatment is that the um, some of the songs are great. I like the songs. I think Little Black Dress, brilliant, and the lullaby song and the way it's shot is excellent. Really good. It's interesting. I was thinking about it and I was like, oh, this is really fascinating because Rocky Horror, like most cult movies. Uh, yeah, that was it. It was Michael yeah. White said it's not a prequel. It's not a sequel. It's an equal. That was quoted yeah. everywhere. Yes, which might have been a mistake because Rocky fans then were the first to say, oh, no, it's not, you know. Hmm. Well, anyway, some people like it. But the point is that it's ridiculous. But of course, Rocky people would think it was going to be another maybe rock and roll musical. Like It's hard to break away from that with that success, you know. So um, what can one say? You know, it's nothing to do with Rocky Horror. Except yeah. it began with something called The Old Queen, another script, and it goes on and on where this was all leading. And then it was meant to be in The Old Queen, Richard was saying that it was about Frank comes back to Denton where Janet's having his baby. And I thought that's the worst thing I ever heard in my life. <laughs> Babies, you know, pregnancies, Frank with pregnancies. Ugh, I couldn't bear it. <laughs> I really, I'd rather, I'd rather, I wouldn't have done that one. But anyway, so that began there somewhere. So I think it went down many roads, but, and we have what we have. So there's no point talking about how we got there or anything. It is what it is. Interestingly enough, it is a movie that over time has become its own beloved cult movie. While misunderstood when it was released, it is now a total fan favorite. Many of us love the music as much or more. You know, some Rocky fans have said they actually like like the music of Shock Treatment more. So it's an interesting thing that it was so misunderstood when it came out. But I really do believe that in the cult universe, it has grown to become a phenomenal cult movie that stands on its own. Would you agree, Michael? When I learned that this movie existed, I did everything I could to track it down and I was obsessed with it. I think that... It has so much uh, to offer and so much commentary and the music is just so good. And to what you were speaking to, Patricia, is that begs a question for me. With the idea of it's not a sequel, it's not a prequel, it's an equal. As we know, looking at the the trajectory of Rocky Horror uh, coming out and then the the sort of fan tide that followed, the audience participation, the midnight screenings, that was something that nobody could have foreseen when you started making Rocky Horror. But when you're making Shock Treatment, that's gotta be in the back of everyone's minds. 
And was that a consideration? Like, while we're making this movie, do we have to be aware that this could become another one of these? No, I was never thought about that ever. Maybe the producers did, but um, to me, they're completely separate. You know, one has nothing to do with the other. Nothing. I I agree. They're completely standalone, you know. And the other great thing is I have a great friend, Wally, my friend Wally. I don't mean fan. He dresses as Nation McKinley. He was one of my first nations. You know, so that was wonderful because it was this fellow that I met and he's brilliant. And then I suddenly thought, God, these people are shock treatment. It was astonishing. It was wonderful when I saw them around, you know, it was wonderful. I think part of the accepting shock treatment over time is actually people accepting that they are standalone films. And Absolutely. when you can when you can separate them and you're not looking at it as though it's in the same universe as Rocky. It's yeah, and there's no sex in shock treatment. No, it's still got such a great queer sensibility. Like it's very edgy. I mean, I love when the guy mowing the lawn says faggots are maggots. You know, it's like very in your face. And it says a lot about Americans. <laughs> it's, it, you know, it's a pretty harsh critique on pop culture and uh, American culture. And to me, that's what makes it really its own interesting thing and separate from Rocky Horror are these sort of pretty subversive, transgressive, in-your-face critiques and ideas. One thing it does have in common that I had to ask you about is incest between you and Richard O'Brien. That's Richard O'Brien. He's obsessed with it. Do you think he fancies me? I think he does. I was going to ask you. He must, you know, he must have have always had a crush on you or something, right? Well, why wouldn't he? He's the only one who has. I actually did an interview with him about Rocky Horror and we were in a booth talking about it recording thing i said you know there never was incest we it's ridiculous he said that was the great thing about it pat you didn't know about it (laughs) because i pat quinn never played incest okay i never was in love with my brother i never played that nothing in my character that plays that and it only happened because during the shoot jim shaman shouted i think when rocky goes down the lift shop and he shouted to Richard, bite her on the neck. So Richard O'Brien goes to bite Pat Quinn on the neck, magenta. And um, they thought that was lovemaking. I never had anything to do with my brother. It's a lie. Well, in Rocky Horror, it's a lie. But in Shock Treatments, it's a little more overt. And I have to say, I do think he fancies you for sure. Like you say, who could resist well, why, you? Why did he do something about it? <laughs> So he never made a move on you behind the scenes? I'm certainly not telling you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, Patricia. Put peaches in her place. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen enough on the show. <laughs> the other thing is with the Darling Meatloaf the other day, I was remembering we were on the set of Rocky Horror. And he said to me, he was so wonderful, he was so young, and he'd come from the show in um, America, the stage show. So he was on the set with me, and he said to me, you know, I was voted the best kisser in Texas in my high school in Texas. And I said, really? Well, one must test that. (laughs) Well, now it explains why you really wanted to go to Texas to make shock treatment. You had to... What about that? I forgot he came from there. And anyway, so he kissed me. And I said, hmm, yes, I'd say 
Yes, one of the best kisses in your high school in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and and of course, we are so sorry to hear of the loss of your Rocky Horror yeah, family true. member. Ugh. I think it's stunning that the Queen's Guard the other day at Buckingham Palace played Meatloaf's songs. Isn't that wonderful? It's wonderful. That's just he gorgeous. He could have got to the palace with Lady Stevens on his arm. Yes, yes. The tremendous effect culturally and the significance of Rocky Horror and the fact that England is so embracing of its legacy now is so wonderful. And Meatloaf being played at the palace is... It's extraordinary, the outpouring about Meatloaf. Not really, but, you know. Yeah. And I remember when I was in New York at the time and I went to his place and all these cardboard boxes were sitting there. And I thought, what's all that? And he said, oh, they're platinums. I said, what? He said, yeah, they're for the band, they're for everyone. Can you believe it? Cluttering up the room. Yeah, that album was just extraordinary. And still, you listen to it. uh, I'm assuming it was for Bad Out of Hell. It's just, you listen to it now and it's just incredible. And it's like the music from Rocky Horror and Shock Treatment. You know, such great, timeless music. And I think you're right that Shock Treatment, one of the reasons it is so likable and so loved today is because the music is so great. And we've caught up with the story of it. Another thing about that we should mention as far as the similarities between Rocky and Shock Treatment, which I think was confusing uh, for audiences, was we did love seeing you Richard and Nell, you know, perform together. Like your universe uh, in the movie, the the mental hospital is maybe the most like Rocky Horror because Brad and Janet in the movie are nothing like, they don't seem like Brad and Janet. They're just kind of named Brad and Janet. The three of you in the hospital, because you're such fabulous, unique, uh, dynamic performers, you, Nell and Richard oh, being with <laughs> but it's true. I mean, I, I in many ways, I feel like the, the magic for me are those scenes, you know, for people who love Rocky Horror. It's like seeing the three of you. You know, I wish we got more movies with the three of you. I do, too. Oh, I'll tell them. Yeah, it's not too late. Okay. <laughs> so how did um, Barry Humphreys fit into all of this? Because his character is so outrageous in terms of the fact that you all had relationships outside of the movie in some ways, that Barry Humphreys fit into your performance world outside of Shock Treatment, or maybe didn't. For some reason, I was assuming Richard and Barry had had a friendship. Yeah, well, I knew Barry very well. Yeah, and I, I Richard, I don't think it's from Australia. Yeah, of course he knew him. I knew him. He was, uh, you know, friends with my friends, like not to do with any films or anything, just a mutual friend, Barry Humphreys. This movie turns 41 years old this year. Crikey, I'm sure. <laughs> Here we are four decades on. And I think that, you you know, you have a very uh, illustrious career. Before we went on the air, we talked about your work on Doctor Who. I know you've worked with Monty Python. You've been in a lot of uh, television and film. And every time you make a movie, you never really know what life it's going to have. Thinking about it, making it then, and talking about it now, did you ever expect 40-plus years later you would still be talking about this movie? No, but I never thought anything of Rocky Horror either, you know. I was just uh, glad it was over. It was a wrap. It was exhausting to make, you know. Shock treatment. You know, it's great, wonderful to be working and be in a movie, be in the whole thing and creating something. It's tremendous. It's my happiest place. But uh, 
And I never consider what will happen to it, ever. How extraordinary, I've never thought of that. That's one thing because you're actually in the very unique position to have starred in not one, but two bona fide cult classics that you know stood the test of time. And most actors who've done tons of movies, it's rare that they do movies that 40 years later are still being talked about and still being screened. In fact, Shock Treatment was also turned into a stage show, unlike Rocky Horror, which was a stage show and then became a movie. So I've always thought it was brilliant on the stage. When I saw the first Shadow cast, um, mm-hmm. It was in the States. Yes, it was at a big convention that Larry Wiesel put on. Brilliant. And uh, the shock treatment cast acted it out in front of the screen. And I thought, this is where it should be. This is a piece of theater. I really saw it as something powerful. And then the guy put it on in Islington here. And it was an amazing success. He changed it a bit, you know, to suit the theater. And... uh, they really wanted it to go into the West End, but for some reason, I don't know if this is correct, So, but I, Richard O'Brien wasn't keen about that, oddly enough, but it was such a success. Even, you know, the Times, critics, whatever, were raving about it. And I, when I saw that shadow cast, I thought, this is theatre. I suddenly saw it as a stage show. Isn't it odd that? Very odd. Isn't it funny, though, that a film that is so distinctly about television works in your mind best on stage? How extraordinary. You're right. Good gosh. Sorry, I hadn't really thought it through, and I didn't get to see that one in Islington. I'm furious. I'm furious, too. I wish I could have seen it. Yeah, the MD, you know, he was really excited about that Islington show. Through the grapevine, I heard nothing but raves. So maybe we can hope that they remount it sometime. Wow. I could play Bert Schnick. (laughs) (laughs) And then you can finally explain the mystery of what's up with the wire and the cane. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. With the future of shock treatment being up in the air as far as whether or not we'll um, see it as a uh, stage show again or, you know, get to do another big, I don't know, re-release where they they put it back out, which I think they should do, honestly, because I was looking it up the last DVD treatment. It's been some years. Uh, so it's time for a Blu-ray or something. But um, I would like to propose to you, Patricia, that someday we do a, a, a screening together. And we do a shock treatment event because you and I have done Rocky Horror. I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yep. (laughs) Well, listeners, you heard it here first. It's coming soon. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You get to wear some of my favorite costumes in the movie. I think your uh, nurse's outfit is great. And then also you have that sexy nurse outfit. I'm guessing Richard put you in. With the, uh, the corset bodice and you just look so great. I love, what did you think of your look in the film? Because it's very different than Rocky Horror. Actually, that was another thing I was thinking about. It was because uh, I decided, thought I use my own hair, but what can we do? And so the our hairdresser was brilliant. And he said, let's do this. It was kind of a Lucille Ball thing, you know, that hairdo. Mm-hmm. But it took a bit of time to do it every day. And he used to come in on his motorbike, the hairdresser, and he was always singing Bat Out of Hell. Isn't that extraordinary? I was remembering that the other day. He was, and I said, what is that you keep singing? No, 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 no. On his bike, he was listening to it, you know. 
anyway, uh, so that was that. And the, the corset and things, Richard didn't have any say in one's costumes unless he did it behind my back. I like that, <laughs> that there's this whole mystery now about Richard's agenda, <gasps> you know, his, his secret agenda to, you know. Just how rumor yeah. starts. They won't like me in New Zealand now. <laughs> but you started it. Oh, yeah. Terrible. <laughs> Peaches, you're making me you know, loose tongue. <laughs> Behind the scenes, there were obviously people that were also part of Rocky Horror, uh, obviously Jim Sharman. Yes. And then yes. was the co- costume designer was the same woman. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. OK. And the production designer as well. Oh, really? I think so. Uh, now, Michael, well, you're the nerd. You're the resident nerd here. Am I wrong about that? How very dare. I believe you are <laughs> correct, though. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Brian Thompson. <laughs> Thompson um, was, I yeah. believe, the, the the production designer for both films. So yes, it was Brian Thompson. Yes, such a partnership those two. They did everything together, and they're brilliant together. Extraordinary. They are brilliant. I think that's another thing to to bring up is like the consistency of the wild look that they created for Rocky is yeah. definitely an equal with Shock Treatment. I, I feel like when you rewatch Shock Treatment, the amount of thought that went into those sets and costumes is just gorgeous. You can't deny it. It's they they really are a, a brilliant team. I didn't realize that they uh, always worked together, but that makes sense. I think what's really remarkable is when you know that the film was hampered briefly by a strike, which which forced you into a yeah. studio. I don't feel like the movie lost anything, though, because those sets are so lush. The production design is really beautiful. It creates this surreal landscape that makes it look like no other movie. I can't even begin to imagine what would have happened in Texas. I can't begin to think how, what it would have been even been about. Do you know what I mean? I can't understand it being in reality locations. You know, like our insane yeah. asylum. That's brilliantly shot. I think, you know, I love Nell dancing around the cage, all of us, you know, her climbing it and things. Oh, you're making me think about Doll again. It's brilliant. Sorry. I think it's brilliant. If you're someone who's, uh, you know, watched it many years ago and, and maybe watched it as part of your immersion into the world of Rocky Horror, I would encourage you to go back and watch it, like Pat says, as its own thing, as its own standalone movie. Because I think when you watch it and really relax into it, I mean, Jessica Harper is actually just so fabulous as well. Like Wonderful. Yes, her voice is so extraordinary. And like I love her in it. And for all of us Pat Quinn obsessed fans, <laughs> you uh you know, you speak a lot more and sing a, sing a lot more in this film. Yeah, that magenta had no lines. <laughs> very few she had a few but not very many i think that you're absolutely right peaches and and uh by looking at this as a separate piece of art we can really see that it is in fact a piece of art that is standing the test of time and in fact with every year especially as as our culture delves deeper into uh artificial reality television and of course you know there's whole healthcare issues we could talk about as well that uh, this movie addresses in, in certain ways. It's colorful, it's amazing, but also it's ahead of its time and continues to be. Wow, you're my man. Well, the, <laughs> the sad part about it is rewatching it is how sadly prophetic it was, right? Like it, it's, yeah. it's a bummer to realize that 
Richard and Jim and the creators could see what was coming. They could see where things like fast food and the corporatization of, of entertainment and politics, where that was going to lead a country like the United States. If you look at what they were thinking, what they were predicting, and as horrifying as it all is, it came true. Oh, absolutely. I'm going to look at it again with new eyes. It's true, though. When I was revisiting it in preparation, and I've seen this movie many, many times, but this is the first watch where when you get the idea that a fast food company is essentially repping pharmaceutical or healthcare, which seems so science fiction, except it's not. You know, sitting here in Los Angeles and thinking about American healthcare, that's actually the least evil thing that's going on right now. And it's still terrible. But this movie saw it coming. And that's so smart. And I forgot my son Quinn's in it as well. Is he? He's all the boys sitting. Linus O'Brien's in it, Richard's boy, and Quinn's in it. Where are they? They're in the, that classroom, the Farley Flavors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. At the very beginning. Okay. Yeah. The bow and arrow, Quinn, you know. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I love that. The other cameo that I think is worth mentioning because we are a cult movie podcast is that Sal Piero is apparently in it. I don't really see where he is, but apparently he has a very small cameo where he's speaking on a payphone in one of the maybe opening sequences of the film. So I went and reread uh, what he wrote about being on the set. And uh, he, of course, described the experience as just phenomenal. You know, he got to make a, a documentary about all of the behind the scenes stuff. And, and I think that's another way in which the universe is interesting. They polled someone, Sal Piero, who is the, the or was the president of the Rocky Horror fan club and, and, and sort of this, this massive leader in the cult of Rocky Horror. It's amazing what Sal has done. Yeah. I saw a video that was um, posted the other day and Sal talking at the 8th Street Playhouse. And it was just astonishing to think everything that he did. It was extraordinary. And he was in my life a lot. You know, he used to come here to my place and things and say, say hello. But I didn't know he ever had a part in shock treatment. I'm going to look at it again because I didn't know he was in it. He's in the opening number. Uh, I think there's a shot where Ruby Wax is coming down a spiral staircase and he's on the phone underneath. Ah. Oh, I forgot about Ruby. I'd better watch it again. I only watched a couple of bits to talk to you. Otherwise, better watch the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the time this podcast is released, my hope is that Patricia and I will have made our very, very exciting announcement. Um, I don't know that I'm allowed to say what it is yet because we're still waiting on um, some things to be signed and the final details to be put on. But my hope is that by the time this podcast is released, you'll have already heard about what Patricia and I are doing uh, in early 2023, which will be of interest to any Rocky Horror or Shock Treatment fan. But it, Sal Piero actually reminded me of that because my hope is that, you know, it's it's a real gathering of fans. But we shall see. I guess that's a tease is what it you is. would call it. Even I wonder what you're talking about. <laughs> Patricia, I cannot thank you enough for coming on our podcast and talking to us about Shock Treatment. Lovely. That was brilliant. You're really great. We should do more of this. <laughs> <laughs> I think we will. Lovely. You've got dirt on your hands and everybody understands you're no good. You're no good. Oh, what a joke. What a joke. You feel like choking. You play for growth. You play for growth. He'll leave you smoking. Oh, oh.
not a children's game But you keep going back It's driving you And that was our conversation with the sensational lady, Patricia Quinn. Uh, we both keep referring to her as a lady because she is. She has the title of lady in the UK. She does, yes. And if you didn't know that, you should. And also, yes, in addition to the many queens we've had on, we've had true royalty here, too. So that was a thrill, Peaches. You know, of course, I love Patricia Quinn's long legacy in the world of cult for Rocky Horror and for shock treatment. One of the great joys of doing the show is we do spend a lot of time kind of socializing with our guests on and off the air before we record. And uh, I mentioned to Patricia Quinn that I also always loved that she appeared in Doctor Who in the 80s uh, before we went on the air and she had quite a story to tell about her helmet that they made her wear and it was just a real joy for me (laughs) Um, but yeah I loved this conversation because when we spoke earlier we spoke about how Richard O'Brien had a sort of public reaction to this film and I got the sense and I've seen Jessica Harper talk about this movie as well in sort of a similar way or just sort of a reticence to talk about it. And by her own admission in this interview, Patricia certainly does not always think about this movie in the same way she thinks of some of her other projects. And I think that what's interesting is it almost feels like they as a film family just decided for a while to step away from it because of the vitriolic reaction from fans. But listening to her kind of unpack the issues, but also unpack the symbolism and the layers and how excited she was to think of it in a new lens. Yeah. That's refreshing to me, you know? Well, I'll be totally honest with everyone. So, uh, you know, I am lucky enough to befriend some of these people that I love so much. And Patricia Quinn and I have become very close. I just love her so much. And and we've we've been, been able to stay you know, good friends and and visit each other. And so I actually reached out to her as far as being on the Midnight Mass podcast uh, with a a message, you know, like a a, a little um, email. And um, she said, call me, (laughs) (laughs) which I thought was sort of strange. So um, I called her and she, you know, uh, answered and she said, shock treatment. Why? (laughs) <laughs> you know, and I and I, I think that kind of that kind of says it all, right? Like because you know the reason Patricia and I are so close uh, is because we've been able to together, you know, celebrate Rocky Horror not a number of times and a number of different shows and a number of different ways, and then of course we've built uh, you know this friendship uh, that that's you know, part of that. Um, So I think she was surprised because, you know, uh, she loves to talk about Rocky Horror. She's uh, very good at talking about Rocky Horror. And I think she genuinely, earnestly loves Rocky Horror. Like, she really embraces it. She's one of these people who, you know, if she's at a convention or she's someplace with fans and she's invited to be a guest, you know, she is genuinely happy to be there. And all of us cult movie fans, we know the difference. There are some people that show up to meet their fans and sign autographs and things because they need uh, the money. And I'm sure everyone needs the money. But there is a difference between the people who are genuinely excited to talk about this movie that they've talked about a million times. Uh, So I think that her response to my question was very revealing and very, you know, kind of telling. And I said, well, because shock treatment, you know, is uh, beloved by a lot of us. You know, maybe it's not. And she said, really? You know, and I'm telling you this just as an insight, you know. Um, And so maybe all of us shock treatment fans out there 
need to let some folks know who made shock treatment, you know, maybe we need to do a better job of letting them know how much we really love it. Because I, I think what you're saying is completely true. I think that, um, I, you know, they, they, they don't get it. And, uh, you know, there there is a huge fan base out there for this film and, and they really just don't know it. I think that um, what's really great is it's a movie that, like a fine wine or like most cult films, it, it ages better every year because the world that it foresaw, this branded reality TV, governments run by fast food world, is not science fiction anymore, it's science fact. So maybe at the time it just seems so bizarre in a way that maybe queer aliens in uh, that castle from Hammer movies was not, you know? Like, yeah, yeah. But I love it, I love too, you could hear in the conversation Patricia getting excited about the new ideas that she was just like, oh yeah, yeah, I love that. That feels good to me that we here doing what we do are able to, like they've given us so much with these movies and as cult figures that when we discuss these movies with them that we're able to give them something back, you know? The reason Patricia Quinn is, is a lady and she's Lady Stevens is because her husband, who is, she's a widow, her husband is, is uh, sadly no longer with us. He passed away. But Robert Stevens was considered maybe one of the greatest ever British Shakespearean stage actors of all time. And he also was a movie star in a lot of British movies. And so they were married and he was a lord and Patricia became a lady. And, you know, Patricia, I mean, I I, I could just tell you some, uh, she could tell you, but I, I've also heard so many of these stories. I like retelling other people's stories. Um, but I mean, some of them include, you know, a friendship with Prince Charles, you know, uh, like like she has lived quite a life and, you know, have, and, and she has met the queen and, you know, she has done incredible, extraordinary things. Um, but what I love about Patricia is it has never stopped her from being fully fucking punk rock. Like, I don't care, like where you are or who you with, Patricia says what she wants to say. She thinks what she thinks. She dresses super fucking cool. I remember she showed up for one of the shows we did in, um, you know, San Francisco wearing these giant fishnet leggings and the cutest dress. And I was like, oh my God, you look fabulous. And she was like, agent provocateur, darling. Agent provocateur <laughs> are the tides. And the dress is Westwood. Vivian's a friend, you know, and it's like, Oh, of course you're friends with Vivian Westwood, you know. So, I mean, we're we're just so lucky, everyone, that we got to talk to Patricia about shock treatment and discovered that she doesn't really ever get asked about it. She doesn't right. talk about it. So if our conversation seemed a little strange, because it did seem a little strange to me at some point, because this woman is so ready to talk about Rocky Horror and has told so many stories. But part of, like, our interview, Michael, was me realizing, like, oh, she doesn't really get asked about this movie very often. No, and it was really true because we finished the interview and afterwards, after we had uh, stopped recording, I had mentioned to her in passing that my boyfriend and I had recently watched another movie she was in called Hawk the Slayer, which she made the same year as Shock <laughs> Treatment. And I didn't even ask her a question. And from mention of the title, she was like, oh, well, let me tell you about Jack Plants and Hawk the Slayer and launched into a story. And I was like, Okay, but in a way it contextualized the shock treatment interview because it showed she just doesn't get asked about it a lot, you know. Right, right. And and the other nice thing 
that I think we were all experiencing is, for those of you listening to this, just knowing that when we recorded it, because Michael and I actually often, as you may know, uh, record these things well ahead of the time that they're released because it takes us a long time to put together one episode of the show because it's multiple interviews and then other recordings. All to say that this was very recently after the loss of Meatloaf. We were talking to her maybe days after he had passed away. And so that was yeah. still very raw for her. And uh, and and she really, both in our interview, but also um, outside of our interview, expressed how much she really loved him. And they really have become this Rocky Horror family. And so, you know, for her to kind of give us some time during really a time of mourning was really uh, very generous of her. Absolutely. Now, speaking of giving us time, one of the things that makes this movie in many ways timeless to me is the music. And we talked about it in the intro, how you and I both agree the music for Chalk Treatment is phenomenal. Uh, I think that all of the performers are at the height of their powers. I mean, I can listen to Jessica Harper sing for days. So uh, good. You know, Patricia Quinn, Richard O'Brien, Little Nell, Nell Campbell, they're, they're all amazing in all of their what they do. And the music is just such a huge, huge part of this. And so we knew that in discussing the music, we wanted to talk to someone who really, really connected with that music. And luckily, our next guest, the accomplished and sensational lauded Major Scales, star of stage and song, he has plenty to say about the tunes that electrify us in shock treatment. And Major Scales is going to talk to us right now. Our second guest on this very exciting and titillating episode of the Midnight Mass podcast. This next guest is a dear, dear friend of mine. I've been uh, on many adventures with. Actually, we've we've co-starred in multiple shows together over the years that have performed in Seattle, Provincetown, and we've been through the UK together and performed in Manchester and London. Of course, you may know him through his fantastic collaborative work with Jinx Monsoon, the brilliant albums, The Inevitable Album and The Ginger Snapped, uh, as well as the stage show that he co-stars in called The Vaudevillians. He's a deer and he is a huge shock treatment fan. Without further ado, let's hear it for Major Scales! Yay! Hi, hi. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. We're very excited to have you here. <laughs> yes, Major. It's so good to have you on this episode because one of the things about shock treatment that really has, has earned it its place on its own in, in sort of a cult movie canon is the music. And you, as a musician, you are Major Scales. Was it the music that first drew you to this movie, or what was it, and how did you discover the movie? It absolutely was, just to answer the question right off the top before I yeah. you know, tell a big story. Uh, the, the music was what drew me in. When I was a little budding gay in uh, high school, middle school abouts, you know, I, 
it's, it's hard to have this conversation talking about shock treatment without talking about Rocky Horror, as I'm sure you're, you both know, because, you know, even if they're not, even if it's not technically a sequel, they're just so intertwined relationship-wise. Um, and when I first saw Rocky Horror as a little kid, and it blew my little mind, um, I immediately found a kindred spirit at school who was already way ahead of me in like pop culture knowledge and just being a cool punk badass. Um, she already knew about Rocky Horror. She was already attending midnight shows. Um, and she said, if you like Rocky, you should totally see the second film. And um, I, I didn't know about it. She gave me the album first, which is why the music connected first. I had a record player, I played it at home, I fell in love with it, I was concocting the story in my head. I didn't really know what the connection was besides a little bit that she told me. But the music won me over immediately. I didn't know back then quite what my, you know, how the 80s would define my aesthetic as, as it does now, um, but I think this was a definite precursor to that because um, the tunes had all the catchiness of, of the Rocky Horror, but with sort of more of a an 80s gleam to them, I think. And it, it, it drew me in, I think, even more than the Rocky Horror music did. So that was my introduction. Later on, I actually saw the movie, but it was the music that hit me first. I know a lot of folks who discover movie musicals or musicals sometimes because they hear the cast album first. And you do that thing that you said. You start constructing the story, uh, imagining what it is, and that can go either way, you know, once you finally see the source material. You can be like, oh, this exceeds my expectations, or the story I've created is far better than what I got. So tell me about seeing the movie the first time. Obviously, you liked it, but were you surprised? Because it's, it's a very odd narrative. I could definitely say that I, I had no idea what I was seeing when it happened. I don't know if this is true of a lot of people, but in my experience, and, and I'd say it's, it's true for me, the first watch I said, mm, I didn't care for it. And I didn't go back to it for a while. I, I continued to listen to the album and enjoyed that and maybe stuck to whatever my idea what it was that I had visualized in my head. But it took until watching it a second time at a later date after I'd separated myself and maybe separated myself from my preconceived notions of how it connected to Rocky Horror before I could enjoy it more. And uh, I, I think that's been true for everyone else I've talked to as well. They have strong, maybe strong negative reactions at first that eventually come around after later viewings. I, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I think in a way uh, with our interview with Patricia, I, I, I sort of tried to bring that up. She agreed that it never should have been presented as, as anything related to Rocky and that it shouldn't have been called, you know, they didn't call it a sequel, they called it an equal. Well, even that's problematic, right? And because we know the players are these people that we love and because they took characters, yeah. Brad and Janet, you know, the protagonists of, of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and, and put them in this movie, of course, you're right, we rejected it in many, many ways, you know, and threw, and threw the baby out with the bathwater until... We kind of went and got the baby a little bit later and said, Clean hey, the baby maybe off. Maybe there's something. He exactly. Clean the baby off and sort of get you. Because you're right. The music is undeniably great. You know, fabulous yeah. music. Can I pitch something to both of you? Because I never was bothered by the connection between the two. And I, I know that's not something a lot of fans Liar. agree with. No, it's true. Because I feel like I. Yeah. It, it, no, it, it's, Ooh, it's not. I was never bothered. It's not that. <laughs> it's the idea that. I guess that I always thought of it with like the James Bond principle. When you watch the James Bond movies, 
you don't expect them to connect in any way. It's just like another adventure in this person's life. And I just kind of viewed it as like another wacky scenario with these sort of avatars for boring white coupledom in another strange scenario. My sense now watching it is that's the intention of the creators. And so I actually think that you you actually watched it the correct way. Um, and, and so I guess what I would say is maybe you weren't as married to Rocky Horror, whereas I was obsessed with Rocky Horror. You know, one, I think we see this problem come up in the Halloween series with Season of the Witch. Season of the Witch, upon revisiting, you know, has finally gotten its due. But when it came out, because it was called Halloween 3 and it did not have Michael Myers, mm. problematic, right? I even have problems with stuff like, well, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2. It pissed me off that fucking Nancy wasn't in it, right? Like, I think a lot of the th problems of Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 that people don't discuss is that, you know, no one from the first one was brought over. And then with Part 3, they brought Nancy back. And I actually got annoyed in Part 4 that it wasn't Patricia Arquette, you know, who, who you know, returned. So, M Major, then, was that the issue for you initially upon viewing? Is that it was so divorced from Rocky? Or was it just because it's so weird? It's possible, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. I appreciate that you were able to make that distinction in your mind, but you can't divorce the two when you have so many connecting lines. Similar actors, and, and even at the beginning of the movie when Brad and Janet are coming in, they're <laughs> alluding to these issues that their marriage is having, and you're like, oh, well, we know what that is. So you've got this image in your mind that this thing happened to them in the semi-recent past, so I assume that's why they're here. You've got the same Denton imagery and, and the same character relationships, even though they're different characters, you know, the McKinleys uh, being incestuous. And uh, there were too many and not enough connections, I think. That, that That's what made it difficult in my head. I think that's a really good way to put it. Although, uh, just so you know, Patricia clarified for us because I brought up the incest uh, of the McKinleys and, and, and suggested that, that that was a carryover from Rocky Horror. And she exclaimed that uh, Magenta and Riff Raff were never incestuous and that that was something that was put in there, you know, after the fact. And then she even went so far, and you're gonna love this major, Patricia went on to suggest that maybe Richard you know, had had a thing for her. But also, how could you not? Richard O'Brien had a thing for her. Well, I, you know, that he, he kept writing these incest scenes just so he could, like, you know, get get his, his you know, his little jollies. He just wanted to bite her, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I have to say, that was my, my favorite takeaway of a, uh, from our Pat interview. Like, oh, yeah, maybe Richard did do that. Um, okay, so, so the thing I wanted to circle back to, Major is at the beginning, you said that you were introduced. Uh, of course, I can't let this go. You were introduced to this movie by someone you went to school with who was very, very cool in punk rock. I just need you to clarify that that's not Jinx. No, that was not the Jinx that I knew in college. <laughs> no, she's not cool at all. Okay, that that was the important note that I had to I had to make sure we, I'm just, we I'm saying that diplomatically. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the back to the film at hand. Um, Thank you. You said you know it took a while to come back to it. What upon that second viewing, after you had had the space, caused the realignment, the click, if you will? What won me over? I think definitely, and and I was paying more attention to it when I rewatched it. I had to divorce the movie from 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 an overall picture. And it was really a collection of, of little things that, that make it enjoyable to me. One is the music, obviously. The other is the general aesthetic. 
you know, I I love I, I love early '80s, uh, really uh, cinematography, uh, fashion, what have you. Uh, that's always been a soft spot for me as a as a late millennial, I guess I am. So um, that resonates with me for some reason a lot. So the costumes that the McKinleys have, obviously, you know, Peaches, we we used those costumes in one of Jinx and my shows because we just love them so much. And then besides that, it's the staging of some of the things. I think I had a real problem, I'm realizing, with with some of the the musical numbers not feeling like they had a musical production style to them. There weren't these big production numbers for, for your larger songs. But I figured out I really enjoy that for some of the the ballads or the the sultry numbers, you know, looking for trade. It has this cool sort of minimalist effect to it that I really enjoy, the lighting. And then just every once in a while, there's a shot that I'm like, mm, that's it. I love that framing. Ruby wax at the, at the telephone. When you see Janet in the little black dress, those little things that just make it enjoyable and charming to me. Yeah, I think that you speak for a lot of us. And, and, and I think that it's that thing where I, I would say that if you are a Rocky fan, and you still bag on shock treatment, you know, then you you haven't really uh, revisited it yet. You really haven't given it the time. Because my my experience is that most Rocky fans, such as everyone on this call, but especially Major, you and I, because we did sort of kind of reject this film at first, which is interesting because most cult film audiences are the opposite. Society rejects the film and then the cult film audience is the one to say, no, 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 you're wrong. This is a cult film audience that due to their cultness rejected this movie because it wasn't what they wanted it to be. But then over time went back and were like, oh shit, this is actually quite good. And if we can look at it as a standalone thing, I mean, Richard O'Brien clearly is genius. I mean, I just I just feel like he's so talented and so inspired. And then uh, the collaboration with Jim Sharman, one other thing that we talked with Patricia about is that the production designer and the costume designer were a team. They were the same people that did Rocky Horror. And you can see that quality, that love, that attention to detail. And I actually quite like that the story of this film is, it originally was supposed to be set in Texas, in a big community, in a big town, um, with exterior shots. They were going to fly uh, everyone over to um, Texas, but for whatever reason, related to the writer's strike at the time, they ended up shooting it all on a soundstage in an actual television studio. And it is a little claustrophobic feeling, but over time, getting to watch it repeatedly, now I kind of, maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, but I appreciate that weird, crazy, strange, kind of claustrophobic universe that it creates, and it works for the whole mental hospital quality to the film and the, the the idea that the TV set and these corporations are controlling you. I really think it's a great movie that it came together and worked. The queer elements, maybe the the queer cult elements are aren't as obvious as Rocky Horror. I think you know because there's so much sexuality in Rocky, it, it's very obvious that this movie is is queer in in one way or another. Um, and I, I think that plays so well in Rocky Horror. It, it has it has this uh, you know oozes this '70s vibe from it of this messy rock and roll uh, sci-fi feel. I think that this movie is a little more subtle in in how queer it is, but or or the cult you know aspects that it has, but it's all in there in in an '80s sort of way in the neons and the cold lighting and the Max Headroom like references that you can just you can see in in 
the costumes and the production design. And, and that's definitely what draws me to it now. I'm glad you said that because something that I was thinking about when revisiting this movie is exactly that. The idea that the queerness of Rocky Horror is really on its sleeve. You see it in the characters, you see it in, in the celebration of all of that at the castle. But when Peaches talks about how the world became contained because of the strike, there's a part of me that wonders if this movie would have even worked in exteriors, because I think that the queerness of shock treatment is actually the world that they're in. Everything about it is so divorced from the mainstream that there's a queerness to everything, the neon, the outfits, but just that it's so not the world we're from. Although, wouldn't you say that part of the queerness is also that it is kind of a, a mocking of Americana and yes. normalcy. Songs like, um, oh, what, what's the it called? The, uh, the one oh. about being a man. Uh, no, thank, thank God I'm a man. You know, like, you know, um, or, or, you know, and I brought this up to Patricia, but I think, you know, even with us, it's like rewatching it. Like I'd forgotten about that line where he just says faggots are maggots, you know? And it's like, you know, all of that in a way is this sort of like, queer take on this is what you are this is what you know america is this is what society is this is what straight people are and i love that yeah i have to ask you major because the music is such a big part of what you love about the movie what are what are your favorite songs i mean do you have a favorite song or would you have a couple favorite songs i think my love of this music is spread around a lot more than maybe Rocky would be. Whereas I would return to a few, a couple of songs in Rocky Horror. I can listen to most of this album. And maybe it's because, you know, it isn't so saturated in my brain, you know, the same way that movie is. But um, Bitchin' in the Kitchen is one of those songs that when I heard as a kid, I was like, I want to emulate that style. I think these lyrics are so smart and funny, but also it's so catchy and has such a great melody to it that I fell in love with it. And now that I'm maybe a little bit, a little more mature, I think some of the songs that I didn't like as a kid, I enjoy a lot more now. Looking for Trade is such a cool Uh, number. So good. And yeah, yeah, uh, In My Own Way uh, is definitely one of my favorites as well. But this movie maybe didn't have the same sort of queer anthem that you could find as a Don't Dream It, Be It. But I think the closest to that for the show would be Breaking Out, which Jinx Mm. and I connected with quite a bit and was why we chose to perform it in shows, because it feels like a quintessential coming out song um, in, in a most punk rock way you can make it for that sort of thing. That's one of the reasons Michael and I really wanted you on this show is, and I know you mentioned it, but like, Jinx and Richard, uh, their love of shock treatment has totally uh, informed their work. So they not only did they do a cover of Breaking Out in, in one of their shows that I saw repeatedly, but I remember when they first were premiering their show in Provincetown, and you, you, neither of you had told me what your costumes were, and I freaked out. And what I loved about it was I was like, oh my God, you look exactly like... You're in shock treatment, thinking they wouldn't know what I was talking about. Like, I'm the old <laughs> queen who's then now going to teach them about these costumes that clearly they had made because they're exactly what Richard O'Brien and Patricia Quinn wear. In the, and, I got, and I took a photo of you, which we'll post online. I took a photo of that, uh, that very night, the, 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 your premiere. Um, and then, of course, the two of you are like, yeah, 
yeah, it's supposed to be shock treatment. You know, that's what this is. Yes, Grandma, we know. <laughs> well, you had mentioned that some of the numbers in this film you don't feel got the great musical staging that maybe they could. So here's here's a fan mm. moment for you. If you were given the opportunity to restage a number from this movie, what would it be and how would you do it? A uh, little black dress. little black dress. Um, uh, me of me. I think uh, both of those numbers. I love the energy that the characters are putting into those moments and i just want i want more of it i want more people involved and i want i obviously you know budgets budgets are a thing and we're definitely a thing for this movie but you you just you hear the music and when you're building it up in your mind having just listened to the album you can imagine whatever you want this huge fantasy sequence i wanted to see more more for that little black dress that's my well i don't know michael uh, what's your favorite song? Because mine is Little Black Dress. That that was the song that, when I listened to the album, after, my, it was when I was sort of giving it my second chance kind of thing, it was like, wait a second, this song, Little Black Dress, is just so good. You can't not like this song. You have to like this song. Michael, what's your favorite? I love Jessica Harper. I always will. Um, you know, she is cult film royalty. Almost every number that she does in this, I think, is spectacular. The Me of Me is just, like, truly great. But... I always loved Breaking Out because I love punk boys and that number just always is a win for me. So Punk British boys pretending to be American <laughs> punk British boys. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a great song. I think, you know, it, and, and it really is like the particular direction for this movie, the style is a lot more tracking shots, close-ups. And I think, you know, maybe you're not getting as much of those production numbers, but when you see the staging of something like Lullaby, which is another one of my favorite songs, it it works perfectly like that because it's so minimalist. It's just the camera going back and forth in these different vignettes, and that's all that that song needs. So what do you think about the, um, you bring up Jessica Harper. Um, as we all know, if you're, if you're a listener of the Midnight Mass podcast, you know that Jessica Harper is one of those rare creatures who has hmm. starred in three pretty major cult movies. You know, we talk about PJ Souls. There are a few few of these actors who really, it's like, wait a second, you're in Suspiria. Like, Dario Argento's Suspiria, you know, Italian giallo classic, probably the most important giallo film, Italian horror film ever made. Of course, we in season one covered uh, The Phantom of the Paradise and Michael yes. and I have done screenings of it and Jessica is the star of that. And in fact, I believe it's because of her performance in Phantom of the Paradise that she was brought in to be considered as Janet for shock treatment. And then of course she's she's in shock treatment. So she's definitely one of these rare creatures of the, the cult movie where it's like, wow, you're you're in three of these. And not really in a lot of other movies, you know, quite frankly, you know. What's interesting to notice, all of those movies are performance-based. The idea that in Suspiria, yeah. she's at a ballet school, Phantom of the Paradise, she's, uh, you know, this rock ingenue. And in this movie, Janet is adopted into being this television mm -hmm. star. I, I just now made that connection right here. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Coincidence? Well, the only difference is you hear her sing, but you never see her dance in Suspiria. I guess you don't really see a lot of dancing in Period uh, in that movie. That's true. No, not really. Uh, uh, so, uh, favorite Janet Major, Susan oh, Sarandon, <laughs> or Jessica Harper? I was just talking with someone uh, the other day. You know, Susan Sarandon's career was really built on playing uptight people who became uh, ravenous sluts, right? <laughs> and she does and it And she's so another well. one. 
Actually, yeah. she's another one who's in um, at least three bona fide cult movies, right? The, the Hunger, Hunger, Rocky yeah. Horror Picture Show, Thelma and Louise. I mean, which is a Eastwick. Oh, yeah. Which is a Eastwick. I mean, Su- Susan Sarandon, actually, I mean, she is, I mean, let's face it, she's iconic. But Absolutely. I had never thought of that. She is, she is that, the, the librarian, right? Who, yes. who, uh, who uh, at night takes her glasses off and lets her hair down and becomes she, naughty. She's so good at it. I Jessica mean, Harper yeah. actually is very similar character-wise in all three movies. Am I wrong? Yeah. She plays it similarly. I think that Susie's a little more innocent. Yeah, well, the, in Suspiria, there's a lot more just being thrown at her and reaction. She's right. a lot more, uh, I, th- I think she's proactive in shock treatment in a way that she isn't in at least Suspiria. Fair enough. And you're right, because we are led to believe that she and Brad have already experienced their awakening thanks to what's happened to them in uh, Rocky Horror. I guess, thinking about it, the reason I'm pushing this question is just because I honestly think that both Brad and Janet's, the, the, the first film and the second film, they're so divorced from each other mm-hmm. that they're almost hard to compare. You know, it almost doesn't feel like the same character in a way. And certainly Cliff DeYoung, what, one thing that I loved about his performance is that he got to be uh, more than one character in Shock Treatment, right? Yes. So we have... Cliff Young plays both Brad Majors, but also sort of the villain, Farley Flavors. Uh, and there is that, you know, one shot. I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, but there is a, a, a single take where he appears as both characters. Did you know that? I didn't notice that. Where you can see both their faces? Yes. So I was reading uh, a little bit about shock treatment preparing for the episode. And they talked about how in the shot, and it's at the beginning, he actually had to, you know, the, the, the camera moved in such a way that the costume, the dressers and stuff actually were hurriedly, after he was shown as Brad, hurriedly changing him into Farley Flavors so that when the camera got back to him, he could appear as Farley Flavors. And I was like, well, that's cool. You know, like I, the nerd in me actually loves that kind of thing, which is very theatrical. Now I feel bad that I did, I've did. i never noticed it because that sounds like something yeah. that a lot of work went into. Yeah. I really give props to this movie for the stars, the, the heroes not being the ingenues. It's uh, really, it's really Ruby Wax and, and Charles Gray, who are the people who save the day. They're not the youngest and they're not the handsome main couple, but they've got a repartee and they get the job done. Well, and that's actually what I was going to ask you about, because we, we kind of got hung up on the the who's the better Janet. But looking at this movie with such a great ensemble, I mean, of course, we have returning cast members from Rocky Horror, but we also have Ruby Wax. We have Cliff Young, We have Jessica Harper. Is there a performance that's just your favorite in this movie, or do you like everybody? You know, I always think that Little Nell gets a uh, short end of the of the stick here. She, her character, every time she has a line, you're you're invested in it, and I just, you know, you just want to see more, more of her, right? I agree with you ten thousand percent, and I was wondering if it's because upon rewatching it, I've now had the extreme pleasure of getting to know uh, Nell Campbell in person. Uh, and so I was wa- like watching it again and I was thinking, God, I forgot how great Nell is in this movie. Oh my God, she is just fabulous. And then we kind of talked about it with Patricia as well and, and just how Nell has some great moments. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. I think that, you know, 
Little Nell was just magic. Nell Campbell was so amazing. Go and do yourself a favor and YouTube some of her old music videos. And, and oh, she's just fabulous. Oh, yeah. One person we haven't yet talked about is, of course, Barry Humphreys, who is uh, best known yes. as Dame Edna. It's Barry Humphreys in drag, but Dame Edna is a real character. This uh, woman that he has played, I think, for something like 50 years now. I think she had her 50th anniversary. Yeah, maybe more. It's insane. So Barry Humphreys had already been doing Dame Edna very successfully and was friends with Richard O'Brien and uh, Patricia Quinn. What do you think of Bert Schnick? as a character in this film. As a character, I find him very interesting. I think he's also one of the more confusing aspects of, of the film. I think we can all agree that uh, yeah. we don't know what yeah. Bert's deal is. We want to know more, maybe. <laughs> Was he blind ever? There's a whole artifice to his character, which I think also probably speaks to the world that he lives in. I, I want to say that, no, he, he was never blind, but he, there are times when he's playing it as though he absolutely is. I wonder if they didn't decide until mid-movie. Oh, maybe, <laughs> That's yeah. possible. So, Major, I'm curious, because one of the things when we talk about cult films, uh, and, and I talk about this and ask this of a lot of our guests, is, is cult films are movies that we take with us. Like, there are a lot of movies we see and then we watch and we move on and we don't really think about ever again. But these are the movies we obsess over and we grow with. And, and your trajectory with this movie, as we've been discussing, was you didn't really like it and then you loved it and now you are obsessed with it. As the years have gone by and you've incorporated songs into your show and you've dressed uh, as these characters and you continue to live with this movie... How has your relationship with shock treatment changed, if at all? Well, you know, again, I think it's just it's just a a willingness or or a better ability to appreciate it than than I used to have. You know, uh, it's I, I got an early interest in cult movies because I was or or off the beaten path movies because I was exposed to mystery science theater at a very young age. I think the the parts of movies that I don't care for, I can enjoy more because I've been exposed to movies that were not great, purposely bad in a lot of aspects, but you can still enjoy those things. Shock Treatment, along with a lot of my favorite films and a lot of the cult films that you know we, we all enjoy, there are moments that are we love more because they're ramshackle or because they have edges and rough spots, and maybe that speaks to the the queer in us as well. I, so I think every time I watch it, it, it resonates more with me and and I understand, oh, this is why that connected. This is why that music makes sense to me and why I try and, you know, emulate at least a little bit of that in the music that I put out. Yeah, I think that's a really, a very thoughtful way to describe it because it's sometimes hard to articulate that thing, that thing about liking something because it's not perfect and, and, and being able to describe why. I mean, I tend to like cities with a little bit of grit, you know, and I think maybe I like my movies that way too. Uh, and I think Shock Treatment has that sort of strange uh, edge to it where it doesn't all add up and, you know, you can rewatch it and kind of pick up on something new over and over again. And the other part of it that, um, of course, we talk a lot about now is just how 
kind of prophetic it was, you know, because it was made before reality television. It really predicted a lot of things. I mean, it really, you know, Richard O'Brien, almost disturbingly so, understood what was coming as far as corporate takeover of entertainment and and how that was going to be used to control us and the media. And, you know, uh, this, this movie was made before They Live. It was made before The Truman Show. And, you know, that's really worth a revisit. So if you're listening to the podcast... Uh, and you've seen Shock Treatment, but you haven't seen it in a while, I hope, if nothing else, our conversations get you to give it uh, another view, uh, especially because it does change the way we view it over time. Before we wrap up, Major, I just wanted to say a couple things. A lot of you may not know this, but Major is a bona fide cult movie fan who uh, at one time hosted a cult movie series with Ben De La Creme in Seattle. Dela, sorry, because, you know, I'm not supposed to call her that. I'm not supposed to call you her gonna Ben. Get I'm letters, not supposed to call you your other name. Texts. I know, Dela and uh, Major. You almost did it again. <laughs> I really have to think about it. I almost did it again. Uh, Dela and Major um, did do this cult movie series, and Major and I have bonded so much over the years on um, favorite movies. We love we love Butcher, Baker, Nightmare Maker. Oh, so glad to watch that with you. Yeah, that was so great. I just wanted to kind of give you your propers as far as our cult movie fans go and, and let them know, like, this is a... This is a true fan of cult movies. What's going on now? Because I know that you're working on something exciting. Yes. Well, right now, uh, right now, I'm literally leaving, just left, um, working on music with Jinx for our current album that is in production. Uh, We were supposed to work on it two years ago, and we have, but we're actually getting to really, really do it now. And we're back in the studio recording stuff. It feels like the creative juices are flowing again. We're very excited. And in a very similar way to many of our favorite cult movies, this definitely has taken a weird turn for us. This is going to be our first rock musical space opera, space rock opera musical. Let's call it that. Oh, wow. Um, We've got a lot of campiness ahead of us, I'd say. I can't wait. That is exciting. And of course, I should also mention for the the UK listeners out there, we have, Jinx and I have our tour coming up in April uh, through the UK together again, again, is again rescheduled and and is honest to God going to happen this time. Well, we're not, I guess I'm not supposed to say anything, but there should be an announcement coming soon about uh, Major and I doing something in the same area that'll take place right after that tour. Mm, uh, so, to yeah, they're, they're still working on it. They're still putting it together, but it looks like it's going to happen. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I know I speak for both Michael and I when I say we are thrilled that you could join us today, especially because you've got a lot going on and this was a really important, uh, I think, way to have you uh, make your Midnight Mass debut. We would like you to come back, but like, wh- who better than to talk about shock treatment than you? And also, in addition to going out and, and rewatching the movie, go to wherever you listen to your music. The whole movie's on YouTube. Go, go to YouTube. No, no, no. I'm telling them to go well, listen I- to your music. Oh, oh, yes. My music is not on YouTube. Yo, go go listen to the Ginger Snapped. The influence of shock treatment is very, I think, relevant in the... Uh, is it relevant, the word? Noticeable? Apparent? Let's let Major... Major, do you have a preferred music streaming platform for your music that listeners can do? Uh, honestly, any anyone besides Spotify, I believe... I know we still have physical copies of it available, probably on Jinx's website, but also we're on your iTunes, we're on your Apple Music... No. Anywhere else that music is sold, we're there. <laughs> well, go buy it, listeners. Please, please, please. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, Major.
Thank you. Mwah. And that was the fabulous Major Scales, who I just think is such a talented, wonderful musician and stage performer. I'm so glad that I've gotten the chance to work with Major. Uh, Major is one of those people who, there's a special kind of performer. And by this, I mean a performer whose ego is so in check that they can get on stage and perform consistently alongside someone like Jinx Monsoon. And I love my drag daughter to pieces, but I'll tell you, Major would get on stage 23 nights in a row, perform alongside myself, Binda LaCrim, and Jinx Monsoon, and not only hold his own, but completely have no problem you know, being left in the shadows because the audience was only paying attention to the drag performers. Major is fucking magic. And, and you know, I, we, I would I often really give him credit off stage and say, you are amazing. Because for any performer, I don't care who you are, when you're on stage with a big old drag queen and you're not in drag, you have to be okay with the fact that you are not going to get nearly the credit you deserve playing the straight man. And that is not an easy role. And so I give Major tons and tons of credit. It totally feeds into this episode because, let's face it, the world in which this movie came from is a very similar world to the one we perform in. You know, these are the people that were making the Rocky Horror Show on stage in London. And I'm sure Tim Curry, just like if you were in any Divine movie, I'm sure certain people got more credit and more attention than others, right? And Major's just amazing. He's such a great uh, performer. So that was a pleasure getting him on the show. I was so thrilled to have Major on the show. And I think that uh, you're absolutely right. He approached this as someone who understands what it takes to make music to enchant an audience. He's so talented. He's so thoughtful. And um, he's such a fan of this movie. It was just a perfect storm. You know, one thing I wanted to mention that we talked with uh, Major about after we recorded, but was a first for us on the show, because Peaches and I frequently discuss the notion of how we find cult films. And a lot of us found movies in the video store era or on late night cable or with, with horror hosts like Elvira or Rhonda Shear. But somehow, 20 plus episodes on, Major is the first guest to ever mention Mystery Science Theater 3000, which is fascinating because for a whole generation of people, that is a gateway to a lot of these cult movies and B-movies and science fiction movies and horror movies. I don't know that you or I, Peaches, particularly were tapped into, but I've, I've met a lot of folks who found movies, who found Ted V. Michaels, who found Roger Corman, uh, who found movies like Shock Treatment because of that show. And I just love that he brought it up because we've not yet mentioned it, but it's there. It's a conduit. And we were going to discuss it at some point. And I'm glad Major was the one to bring it up. Yeah, and I'm glad that you um, contextualized it the way that you did because it's it's something that I really like learning about, which is, you know, um, well, for example, I've talked about when programming Midnight Mass, I 
think I'm one of the first people to really program what we call now in the midnight exhibition circuit, the nostalgia film. You know, nostalgia films weren't really programmed as midnight movies when I started. And so I started programming films like The Goonies, you know, in the mid nineties. Well, you know, for, for the audience showing up, they were showing up to see a movie they had seen a million times. You know, that's not what midnight movies were. Before that, they were they were movies that you couldn't readily get or watch at home. You know, they were movies where you, you went out at midnight to see these movies because they weren't available other places, like Pink Flamingos, Eraserhead, whatever. Even Taxi Driver, they were these uh, older films. And um, over time, I outgrew what the modern nostalgia midnight movie booking is because I've been in the business for so long. And right. so my introduction to Ted B. Michaels and Herschel Gordon-Lewis was through John Waters and the book Shock Value, right? And, and like, I don't know how John found them. I don't know. But the point is, you found things through Up All Night. Major found things through Mystery Science Theater 3000. I actually found things through reading books, like a true intellectual. Um, you know, um, <laughs> no, like an old lady, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like someone, someone who just had not, didn't. I was. It was before television. You know, Peach, <laughs> Peaches is like to the public library. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it is really good to realize that someone uh, is so much younger than myself, like Major, that there is this sort of real, true, earnest love for cult movies and obscure, weird. Uh, transgressive films and you know he he found them through this other way yeah and I think it's great and I I love that that's such a gateway for people because uh, I didn't really attach myself to Mystery Science Theater 3000 the way that other folks did I, I've seen it I've come to appreciate it more later I do think those guys are quite funny but you know it is a path. And, and these movies, some of them would be lost if not for shows like that. And maybe the context, because I know something that like some of us would struggle with is we wanted to watch the movies instead of listening to guys make fun of them. But I also remember for like when I lived in Pittsburgh, I had a neighbor who saw Ted B. Michael's Girl with Cold Boots on Mystery Science Theater 3000. And yes, he watched it and enjoyed the raucous jokes that they made, but he was fascinated enough by the movie that he was like, I want to go find that movie now. You just need a few of those people to go look for Ted's catalog after they see it on this airing, to go look for You're the Hunter or you know Battle Beyond the Stars to keep it going. And that's really what cult fandom is all about. It's not how you find it, it's how you keep it. Yeah, and that reminds me of something that's super, totally juicy and crazy. Oh, my God. But I'm going to propose something to you, Michael. Uh, let's jump off this, say goodbye to our listeners, and record a little video for the Patreon where I share this little bit of juicy, uh, interesting, exciting tidbit knowledge with you just for our Patreon subscribers. I mean, if you want to see the video, we're going to record it today and put it up. So if you want to see it, you know, just, just subscribe to our Patreon and support the Midnight Mass podcast. Because, I mean, if you like seriously juicy cult movie gossip, well, <laughs> then you too might be one of the children of the podcorn now. <laughs> <laughs>
Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production.